Welcome to the East Peak Podcast. Um, today I have guest uh, Raf Garcia, a friend, uh, former CTO and co-founder of EdTech company Clever. Uh, welcome, Raf. Thanks, Stuart. Good to, okay. good to chat with you. Awesome. Well, I think as I uh, continue to interview um, others on this podcast, it'll probably primarily be with operators on the go-to-market side, but I thought it'd be really interesting and fun to start with you, um, someone who's kind of on the other side of the house uh, from the typical sales, marketing, and, and sales ops people that I'll likely be speaking with more frequently. Um, so with that, um, would you mind maybe introducing yourself? And um, I know you're still working with Clever on an advisory uh, basis, but uh, maybe explain a little bit about what Clever is and uh, yeah, a background about yourself. Yeah, so um, Clever, uh, at a high level, we help uh, schools with account management and single sign-on, so um, giving administrators kind of tools to create accounts, manage logins for teachers and students in their in their district. So, um, yeah, we're, we serve about 25 million um, teachers and students in that way. Uh, primarily in the U.S. Um, but yeah, we started the company in 2012. Um, it was me and two uh, friends of mine from, from college. Um, and we sold it in uh, 2021 to uh, a Norwegian company, uh, Kahoot. And uh, yeah, um, I uh, kind of took a step back beginning of this year uh, to... Uh, kind of think about what comes next and also just uh, kind of see what life is like without the stress of uh, uh, being a founder for uh, 11 years now. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And uh, yeah, I guess other than other than that, I'm a dad of three kids and uh, live in Cincinnati. Uh, we moved here from San Francisco a few years ago to be closer to, to family. So yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, definitely some well-earned time off between gigs. So, um, yeah. cool. um, all right. Well, you know, um, part of the reason I wanted to speak with you today is, you know, we're out of this, uh, zero interest rate phenomenon environment and <laughs> this bubbly churn that we had for several years. Um, particularly, you know, 2020, 2019 onwards. Uh, and you guys, uh, I think actually, executed uh, really well this dream that a lot of businesses are trying to aggressively pivot towards. So um, to my understanding is you guys really only raised about 40 or $43 million along your journey. And uh, at least according to Crunchbase, um, you guys had an exit somewhere between 400 and $500 million. So 10x return. Um, and it seems like you haven't actually raised for maybe, um, I think six or seven years. So um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about like what went into that. Uh, was that uh, a function of just like the total adjustable market and hitting the S curve in your business, or was that a conscious decision um, to be more conservative with your burn? Yeah, I think um, you know we raised um, yeah three rounds, basically a seed round, a round, and a B round, um, about a year apart, three years into the, like one year into the company, two years and three years into the company. And I think the the primary drivers were just um, seeing the company growing quickly, and just like 
kind of fueling the ambition we had for how big the company could be. Um, but once we kind of reached a stable point where we could fund our growth and the hiring we wanted to do from the revenue we were producing, um, there didn't really, we didn't really need to raise another, another round. And I think the challenge we ended up having is, you know, I think this is typical for lots of startups is you have your core business that you start out with. It grows, it grows, it grows. And then eventually it gets to a growth rate that is good, but not like, um, gonna, you know, take over the world. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you're growing at 20% a year, whereas before you're like doubling every year. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when you get to that point and you have stable revenue and you can kind of fund your own operations, um, the mindset kind of shifts to like find a new product, find a new um, kind of growth curve to get on. And if it, if it clicks, then think about raising money or um, if you have to. Um, mm -hmm. And so for us, we, uh, we explored lots of different products. We ended up essentially just expanding the core product that we do kind of over time and that, you know, revenue from that has steadily grown um, to the point, uh, I think now uh, Clever is uh, over like 50 million uh, a year run rate. Um, so, and we thought it would, you know, the core product in the early days were like, oh, there's no way this gets over like mm -hmm. 10 or 20. Like we need to figure out something else to get us to the next level. But it's been steadily growing. And like, you know, I think if you attach yourself to a market that is growing and you uh, continue to deliver, to deliver stuff into that market, like, you know, you can steadily grow for a long period of time before you run out of stuff to do. Great. Well, uh, inspiration to all these businesses that have been given marching orders to, um, you know, have, have reasonable, uh, structured growth. So love it. Um, cool. So maybe, um, we'll pivot back to the business and maybe kind of how you landed on that idea and navigated the idea maze, um, in a second, but, um, maybe, pivoting to just kind of like some personal background. I, I believe that, um, you know, the way we're raised, uh, where we grow up in the country or elsewhere, um, amongst other things, like has a pretty big impact in terms of your approach to business, um, the career trajectories you take and more. So, um, it's my understanding that your parents actually emigrated to the U S um, from Venezuela and then you grew up in the greater, um, I think Chicago area. Um, yeah. what kind of impact do you think that had maybe on your academic path and your eventual choice and, uh, decisions as a founder? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest impact it had was the fact that they chose to, to move here to the U S mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my life would be, uh, much different growing up in, in Venezuela. Um, so that's kind of the, the biggest thing I'm like, I could have been very, uh, very different for me. Um, and then I think beyond that um, is really, you know, my parents, especially my mom, you know, sacrificed a lot to um, like drive me 45 minutes each way to a school um, growing up and like figuring out a way for me to get like tuition, like scholarships, you know, when we, when she was eventually a single mom uh, and we had basically uh, no, uh, no money. Um, and yeah, I think 
you know, from that point forward, uh, you know, we moved to Naperville, um, which is one of the better school districts in the Chicago area. And so like, you know, just continued focus on just like getting me and my sister to have all these opportunities, like from an educational point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, you know, I was super lucky that my mom cared deeply about that. Um, so I think that's the biggest impact it had. And I think eventually, you know, what that translated to is, you know, going to Harvard, going to places where, you know, I was challenged academically, surrounded by people that were really good at lots of things and uh, kind of forced me to, you know, fulfill uh, the potential I had and, and really uh, push myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, eventually, you know, my two co-founders are, you know, good friends from college and, you know, professionally speaking, it was, um, it was, uh, it was, it was awesome to be surrounded by all these, uh, smart people in college that, you know, become lifelong friends and eventual, uh, business partners. So, um, yeah, I think my parents, it's uh, the biggest impact was kind of the, the focus on education and, um, and just, yeah, trying to give, give me the opportunity to, succeed um here in the u.s and not in venezuela (laughs) what uh what led you to uh decide to actually graduate from harvard instead of dropping out your all the cool kids right um you know what so we 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 didn't start clever until um 2012 which was Mm -hmm. a few years after we had all graduated and honestly i felt like that was the right thing to do from a just like you know, go out, have it like go out into the real world, get a job, kind of realize um, what it is that makes you tick in a professional environment. Because when you leave college, you're mainly just averaging what your friends are doing and what mm-hmm. people of your typical background or major are doing. You're not really driven by much of a principled, like, this is what I want to do with my life uh, approach. So I think having a few years, I, I went to uh, work for a high-frequency trading company in Chicago and got really good mentorship from really amazing programmers and um, systems engineers and learned a ton. And after three years there, I felt like um, I was, you know, I had gained all these skills that I could now apply to starting a, my own company and like building out systems from scratch and, um I think that was that was that was key, and it also gave you know my my co-founder Dan, who's kind of the domain expert expert in education, it gave him three years to teach in a classroom in Denver and and understand the problem that eventually is what we ended up solving. So, I think yeah, just going out into the real world, getting some uh, skills and domain expertise mm-hmm. is uh, pretty valuable. And yeah, didn't have any of that you know, in before graduation. Totally. At the risk of going on at a tangent, um, what was, uh, what was kind of the edge, uh, or like alpha this, this firm was trying to pursue? Like what was their investment? Yeah. So it was all algorithmic stuff. So we were training models, um, on just data we got from every single exchange across the whole world. So there was no specialty geographically. It was mainly just, find data feeds and connectivity to as many things as possible, Mm -hmm. run a bunch of back tests and models on uh, 
and simulations on tons of things, see what sticks. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think the edge was in that infrastructure for testing uh, mm -hmm. ideas, adjusting them as market conditions evolve over time. Nothing works forever. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, having just world-class connectivity to exchanges so that you're the fastest uh, fastest uh, to react to to when, to when things happen. So yeah, there is, I mean, Jump is an incredibly successful trading firm and they've grown a ton uh, since I've, I've left. Um, it's, they have tons of smart people and, and lots of, lots of alpha. Um, but yeah, I was on a team uh, that we were, we were primarily um, trading interest rate uh, futures. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, eventually it came out many years later that uh, there was a big scandal that a lot of investment banks were uh, manipulating that market uh, pretty extensively. The LIBOR yeah. uh, scandal, exactly. So um, that that was somewhat frustrating to read about uh, after the mm -hmm. fact, but, you know, it is what it is. But um, yeah, it was fun. It was learned a ton. And um, but yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to really dedicate my life to. Makes sense. Did you get a cameo in Michael Lewis's Flash Boys or no mention? <laughs> I mean, it was no mention, but you know that was one of those uh, moments. I mean, I remember that day pretty vividly. The um, flash crash, and um, and the eventual kind of brief backlash against high frequency trading, culminating in that book. And mm -hmm. um, I think it kind of it, it was one of those moments for me where you know I was deep in the weeds. I understood what we were doing, and I believed it was perfectly fine. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, to read about, read that book, read things that were re being written in the press, it really kind of, kind of challenged my belief in like a lot of reporting, um, honestly. Mm. And I think a lot of people actually now are realizing with, you know, Michael Lewis's book about Sam Bankman Freed that, um, Maybe he isn't the most uh, right. clear-eyed uh, financial reporter. <laughs> Seems to maybe, uh, yeah, got a little too close, I think, with that. that nope. one, so. nope. Okay, great. Um, yeah, that, uh, I think you're kind of talking about the uh, Gelman amnesia effect. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with that, but for the listeners, if you haven't heard about that, it's... Uh, the idea that you're going around and uh, you follow a given reporter or a you know newspaper of record, then you finally stumble across uh, a topic that you happen to be an expert in, and they get it backwards or totally upside down, um, and then you go on to read the next article and you completely forget that uh, the thing you actually could verify was completely wrong. That the next topic somehow must be right. So, um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks for indulging me down that early career path. So. Um, Cool. So you and your founders actually had the opportunity to like touch grass a little bit uh, outside the Harvard Yard and um, have some surface area of the real world and encounter some problem sets. So um, how did you kind of like decide on kind of like the ed tech space? Like what what was it that made you want to go deeper or pursue that area? Yeah, it was pretty um, it was pretty clear. Um to me and uh, my co-founder, other co-founder, Tyler, um, towards like 2011, uh, beginning of 2012, that we wanted to start some kind of company. Um, we were both ready to leave our jobs. We had both kind of gotten some expertise and skills from our, our jobs. Um, 
and it was really about finding what to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was flying out to San Francisco. We were tinkering on ideas. Um, and eventually Dan, my education uh, education background uh, co-founder, he came out to San Francisco for some uh, like hackathon weekend, EdTech hack- hackathon. Mm-hmm. And he stayed with Tyler and started talking to him about all these things he was frustrated with. Um, and it was just kind of this perfect seeding of the idea of like, oh, here Tyler and Raf were trying to think about ideas to, to work on. And here's Dan, our friend, who's like serving up like this problem to work on uh, on a silver platter um, and is like our super talented domain expert uh, that knows exactly what he wants the solution to, to look like. Um, so it kind of was pretty straightforward from that point where, um, you know, we were young, uh, fairly unencumbered by responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, we met up, uh, the three of us one weekend in San Francisco. Um, I came out from Chicago, Dan from Denver, where he was teaching. Tyler was there already. And, uh, we hold ourselves up in, uh, Tyler got some sweet at the Fairmont on points Okay. And uh, we hold up ourselves for a weekend and kind of cranked out a, pr- a prototype of something that eventually became uh, kind of the first version of, of of Clever. And once we kind of knocked out a little bit of that technical uncertainty or just like um, scratched the surface a bit, that's mm-hmm. when we kind of knew, okay, this is there's something here. Um, it's worth pulling this thread. And so we that was about that was like. January of 2012, we all mm-hmm. kind of set in motion, uh, kind of resigning our current jobs, and um, I moved out in February and and started working uh, on the company. So yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a coincidental but um, very easy decision uh, to make at the end of the day when you know two people you know and trust uh, are available to work on something, and w- one of them has a problem that he knows very well. And uh, you all three have different skills that you kind of bring to the table. Very cool. So in that, um, that kind of like uh, mini hackathon weekend, like what role did the, uh, the Tonga room, the famous uh, tiki <laughs> bar downstairs play in the basement? Uh, it did not play any uh, role really. We were in the, uh, the Ralston suite uh, and uh that's just forever been in clever lore, at least among the founders as like this special place. Um, and then eventually Jeff Ralston, uh, was one of our advisors at Y Combinator and he invested in the company. So there's lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of, uh, Ralston's involved in our history. There you go. Nice. <laughs> Cool. So um, this uh, kind of navigating the idea maze, like this occurred before you submitted a Y Combinator? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we a- by the time but by the time we applied to Y Combinator, it was a few months in and we already uh, had commitments from a couple of customers. Uh, hmm. We were working with Dan's school district. Um, so we had some early traction and like, uh, and yeah, we we're kind of, pretty set on this idea but i mean there's never um you know you go into yc and now you're surrounded by like 80 in our case 80 companies that are all working on different things and um we certainly had ideas of like oh man is this is do we do we really want to be working on this is this the one idea that we want to go with Mm -hmm. um so we had a few moments like that um but ultimately we went all in on on 
the idea that we started with. Um, and yeah. So that's uh that that's pretty like mature though for the modal YC batch, right? Like to have a customer even and kind of because a lot of times they kind of are like whipping together almost like vaporware, <laughs> like a lot of times, right? Yeah, I mean it varies. I mean some people go. Um, I mean, I mean, it's, I would say the vast majority, ninety nine percent of people apply to YC with an idea that they're working on, mm -hmm. um, but then a good chunk of them pivot or change uh, probably. 30 to 50 percent if i were to guesstimate uh either during the batch or after the batch um so uh yeah i mean startups are a game of iterating and and exploring so it's kind of a natural process but we were lucky enough to kind of uh figure something out that mostly worked like uh, i i actually went back to our yc application um recently and basically what we laid out was exactly what we ended up doing. <laughs> um, so I think that was just, you know, to Dan's credit, he knew exactly what we should build and had a nice. very clear idea that we pursued and it ended up um, working out. No. Very cool. So uh, yeah, um, 2012, like kind of that, that era um, was probably super special. YC still like was, Paul and Jessica still involved, or was Sam taken over at that point? Yeah, Paul. Paul was still definitely involved, and um, yeah, some of my best memories from that time were our meetings with him. Um, you know, at, at that stage, you know, your ambitions are just like they could go anywhere, they can go mm -hmm. in any direction, and the ups and downs are are huge. You know, like any day the company could just um, evaporate or there's existential risks, uh, around every corner. Um, but if we ever needed like a pump up of like, you know, we're, we're really feeling down about the company or like, you know, maybe it was, it was actually a lot of times before we went out and fundraised. Um, if we ever needed a way to kind of really imagine the maximum thing that clever could be like, um, like office hours with Paul Graham was like the solution to that problem. Nice. Like you go on a walk with him for 30 minutes and like tell him what you're working on and he'll tell you how it's going to take over the world. Like he can connect those dots. He can kind of like get those creative juices flowing um, in a way that is really unique. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a great experience for us. I mean, you know, again, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, in hindsight, I think maybe I could only do as a 25 year old, but uh, you know, three months of just like intense focus on making mm -hmm. something work um surrounded by lots of other smart people that are doing the same thing um mm -hmm. it's just a really powerful uh experience um i bet because yeah it just brings out you know the best in you and you you know at the end of the, the program you have demo day so it's this big opportunity to to raise money um so you want to make the most of that so there's just like all these incentives driving you to like you know do good work and do and uh do it quickly uh so yeah it was a great it was a great experience and uh it certainly accelerated our trajectory um by by a lot very cool um in recent years i know some people have been like more critical of y combinator saying that you know the take is like quite large um and like just some like adversarial uh 
you know, outcomes and effects and things like that that occur. But, um, you know, I've been hearing really good things since uh, Gary Tan has been taken over the wheel. Like, do you, do you stay connected yeah. with them and have any thoughts about kind of the juice being worth a squeeze or not in terms of, yeah. um, you know, the position they take? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to, um, I mean, if you were to measure it kind of objectively, you'd kind of, things you'd want to look at are like how successful is the average YC company versus non-YC companies. And I think everything you see in that realm just proves that YC companies are like way more successful than non-YC companies. Um, I think I remember seeing some stats around like unicorns produced like percentage of YC companies that become unicorns, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I think it's pretty clear, objectively speaking, that YC uh, produces good companies. Um, so in that in that light, I feel like they could probably, uh, and also given how many people apply to YC, um, I feel like the demand to be a YC company is extremely high. So I'm not surprised that they're uh, able to command mm-hmm. a high price of entry. Um, and it seems worth it. I mean, I think I, it was worth it for us. Um, I think if you look at the results of, um, you know, broadly across all YC companies, it's it's worth it. So, um, yeah, I think they've they've created a very special uh, place that attracts the best companies, and um, they can they are in a good position to to ask a lot uh, of for in terms of equity and um, you know that kind of stuff. Makes sense. Okay, so you eventually do move out to the Bay Area. Uh, you make a go of this full time. Um, maybe we, could we kind of um, talk about maybe post YC and maybe even after your first raise, like um, selling into you know state and local education, as well as like the federal and state government is like notoriously challenging. And you know, I personally have been in in SaaS sales operations and like leading teams for. 12 years. Um, but I've always been a little wimpy about wanting to touch that space just cause you know, it, it like healthcare and some other hard markets, it has some reputational challenges, um, in terms of go to market. Yeah. Um, how did you kind of find like the initial going once you had like a viable product and you were going to market was, was, uh, there anything that you really were taken aback by or what was it? Yeah. Yeah, what was the general motion? Yeah, so I think you know Clever has a pretty unique business model. Um, so Clever is free to schools, and we mm. charge edtech developers um, kind of a per school licensing fee. So like, mm-hmm. um, it really simplified our sales uh, motion into a B two B sale to a software company, mm. um, and then on top of that, it kind of uh, activated these companies, these software companies that we were uh, selling Clever to uh, were then motivated to go out to all of their school customers and say, hey, like, I just I just purchased this thing, Clever, that is going to, like, make our lives easier uh, implementing uh, this software in the classroom. Like, please sign up for Clever. It's free. Um, mm-hmm. So now we had activated, you know, the sales forces and marketing departments mm-hmm. of our software company customers to go out and and get clever installed in all the schools that they they work with um so we kind of piggybacked upon their relationships with schools um by you know making the sale to the software company and getting 
building trust with them and like, you know, giving them something that they really wanted to go out and use with all their customers. Um, and that basically uh, we were able to avoid having to directly sell to schools for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually we're out there, uh, you know, especially with larger districts, um, you know, we had a, we have a success team that like works with some of the largest districts, um, and now we sell some products directly to, to districts. So that that kind of has changed a little bit over time. But at its core, you know, clever the go to market has been powered by um, a simple B two B sale to a software company that then goes out and and like advocates for clever in every school that they they operate in, which. Uh, uh, is kind of what was the main driver of our growth. Because then the school mm-hmm. turns around to all their uh, software providers and says, hey, I just started using this clever thing. Uh, like, you should get on it. And now, like, we have inbound uh, from from the other um, vendors that they use. It's a hell of a network effect. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, um, you know, eventually as you move away from kind of like general founding partner, you eventually take on the mantle of CTO. Yeah. Um, and I know that different businesses, um, particularly like different industries and stuff, the CTO can have like different kinds of remits. Um, so what, what was kind of like your general charter um, as the business progressed uh, when you were formally CTO? Yeah. So um, in the early days, it was you know, shipping code, uh, and, uh, honestly really taking a lot of direction and, and listening to, uh, sales calls, uh, and, um, you know, in the, in the early days we were all in one room, you know, I was listening to Tyler and Dan make mm-hmm. sales, sales calls and start to like promise things that were, you know, still in development, uh, you know, your typical, um, kind of thing. And that was a, a, honestly like, that was awesome. I think uh, just being able to be in those conversations and see kind of the, the feedback that we were getting kind of ambiently, you know, I was like, I had my headphones on, I was trying to like focus, but um, it was really great. Um, but, you know, as, as the team grew, um, you know, we first thing you are typically add is engineers. So I, I quickly kind mm-hmm. of um, within a year, I'd say I was primarily managing um and eventually when we were about 20 engineers um i kind of had have, had had it enough um and we hired a, a vp of engineering uh mm-hmm. and i kind of ripped the band-aid off gave him all these reports and uh went back to to uh to coding which was great and um mm-hmm. From that point forward, you know, I kind of bounced between different uh, kind of projects uh, and eventually um, led our core infrastructure team. So mm-hmm. um, basically developing uh, or working with the team and eventually just managing the team uh, that uh, works on kind of making sure Clever has good uptime and that like engineers within Clever have really good tools to make changes and deploy things safely and just be super productive. Um, so it was a good, you know, I think at a high level, you know, as a founder and CTO, I really felt driven to find where are the technical problems that like I can have the biggest impact given my knowledge of the history and systems. Um, so, uh, that was a great, you know, operating at that level of like the core infrastructure that underlies everything that we do was a great way to, 
to find problems in that that area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you uh, were you an early adopter of any kind of a, you know new um, modern architectures or anything like that? Or yeah, we were um, we were fairly. Uh, probably too early on like the Docker, uh, train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I mean, we were giving talks at Docker meetups back in 2013 and, um, mm-hmm. using it in production and which was fine. I mean, we, you know, we, uh, I think it, it ended up being perfectly fine. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the world is organized around containers now. And so, mm-hmm. um, but it did lead to some misfires in terms of like, you know, things that we use to manage, manage all that. And, you know, the systems now, uh, if, if we were to rebuild everything today would look a lot different, I think. Um, totally. And, uh, but that's just the na- nature of the game. I mean, lots of decisions you make at the time are correct, uh, te- technically speaking. Um, mm-hmm. And you later, you know, realize oh it could have been a little bit better if we did this or nowadays there's new things that we could have used so it's like uh, we would do it differently today but you know it's it is what it is kubernetes or something like that yeah no so, i mean that, uh, that, that, that that's exactly it it's you know all these yeah. all these different frameworks for um you know we evaluated kubernetes at multiple points in time mm-hmm. uh when it first came out and um uh we actually didn't adopt it we went with um Amazon's ECS um, mm-hmm. service, uh, which uh, ended up actually working out well for us. I think a lot of people like the the hype curve on Kubernetes has kind of come back to like, you know, <laughs> like dread yeah. and, and trough regret. of despair. Yeah, despair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think we avoided, uh, you know, over investing in yeah. something yeah. very complex and not something that would. And we ended up with something perfectly fine, which is you know, an AWS product that you know isn't as hot as Kubernetes, um, but, mm-hmm. you know, has a human support team that like we can ask questions about and, uh, right. you know, doesn't change very frequently and is, uh, pretty straightforward. I don't know what a note is still at this point. I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> so, um, great. So, um, pivoting away from kind of like your tech stack and, um, and the like, um, so as, as you've grown and you have like more specialized remit, obviously something similar happened on the go-to-market side of the house. So, um, you know, when you partnered um, with with kind of your salespeople and, and marketing partners and others, um, what did you as a as a more technical leader like admire or kind of think of as like best practices? Like what really struck you as okay, this is what good looks like and you know, I, I want to see more of this because I think on the go-to-market side of the house, it can almost be like adversarial sometimes in terms of conflicts over product roadmaps and where we see bottlenecks. And, you know, there's this feeling that sometimes maybe the engineering team is a little distance from the customer. Like they want to build something that's cool and maybe not monetizable. Like no. what really uh, did that perspective from your side look like? Um, yeah. So one of the things, one of the teams I, I um, initially kind of embedded myself in after hiring a VP of engineering was um, our partner engineering team, which is like kind of like customer success, but specifically for mm. the technical people at our customer, our technical customers. Um, mm-hmm. Since Clever at its at its core, you need to integrate 
do a technical integration to, to have it work. Um, and I think that really opened my eyes to kind of the day-to-day -day challenges of like, you know, uh, a, a success team that is working with a very technical product that has to manage. There's like an, a huge element of like project management and like working, uh, working through uh, timelines and like trying to get another company to like develop something, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then, and then responding to crises, it was another thing that I just like, it's this, it's a whole world of a stressful world of like problems that, you know, your customers come to you that most engineering teams are fairly insulated from that I was kind of on the front lines of, um, you know, there is, uh, one partner of ours, uh, I remember pretty vividly was having this like crisis during back to school and we, you know, me and other engineer and someone from our success team, you know, literally like flew out there and like spent two all nighters, uh, in like New Jersey, like middle of New Jersey, um, just like working through problems with, uh, with this, this customer. And those kind of experiences really just drive home, you know, the importance of what you're building and like, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I thought it, it was a great experience to, to kind of feel customer pain and feel pain myself, uh, on those, those trips. Um, so yeah, that was, that was eye opening to me. And, um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it was, um, it was something that uh, I tried to take back to the rest of the team and, you know, make sure that, you know, the engineering team feels some of that. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's important, I think, that, you know, you can't just throw something over the wall to your success team and, mm -hmm. and uh, say, have a good have a good day. You know, you got to feel kind of the, the bugs and, and rough edges yourself. Makes sense. You know, um, yeah, I love that. There's it. Just like I think anything like a priori is just it's it's never gonna really map out. I think just like getting there, touching grass, like seeing how it actually interacts in the real world is a game changer. So, yeah. okay, great. So kind of um, maybe pivoting a little bit. So um, you left the barrier before it was cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know you grew up in um, you grew up in the Chicago area obviously had some formative years in the Boston area as an undergraduate and then, um, a long stint in San Francisco. Um, so now you are in Ohio. Um, what has moving to Ohio, uh, how has that like affected you or maybe changed your perspective as a, a one-time and maybe future founder and also like uh, remote work as part of that? Like what is your yeah. experience been? Yeah, I think it's, you know, when you start a company, I think you, um, you really come to value the experience of, of being a small team in the same room, kind of what I described before, like everyone is kind of, you can turn around and like hear a sales call. You can turn around and like talk about, um, you know, what we should be building uh, can turn around and like yell at your, your engineering intern to like do this thing, you know? Um, so I think for me, I kind of came into moving here and eventually COVID, which hit and a little bit after we moved here and everyone went remote. Um, I came into that with this strong 
kind of warm spot in my heart for like the early days where we are like in person and just like interacting at, with like zero latency on everything. Um, and I think that has really kind of biased my view. Um, and it has been reinforced just by like, I don't really enjoy being fully remote. I really need that mm-hmm. in-person um, interaction. Um, but I think it's highly personal based off of just like the history of, you know, starting this company. Um, if I were to think about starting another company, I think my default would be to know, do what I know and like um, try and find some way to be in person, whether it's mm-hmm. um, commuting to SF Monday through Friday or like doing something here in Cincinnati if I can find uh, the right team. Um, so I think that's where I would gravitate towards. Um, but yeah, I would love to see people figure out uh, new ways to recreate that in a remote world. Um, but totally being remote f- since 2020 or 2019 when I moved here um, has has not been like amazing. I haven't like loved mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, I love Cincinnati. Don't get me wrong. Like it's the best place for us to be. Um, but yeah, if I were to start another company, I think I would want to do it in person. And I think SF and the Bay Area is still the best best place to do it. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I definitely like empathize with that. I think like a lot of my formative um, experiences in sales, it's like, it's just like um, the the bandwidth, you know, that kind of like Shannon limit is so much bigger in person um, and you can hear people behind your shoulder and it's yeah. just really hard to recreate that. But I definitely think there's like a U-shaped curve because I think like later in your career, I mean, I wrote an article about this a little bit ago, but I don't know, somewhere 2015, 16, all these companies have started copying Google's freaking open floor plan. And it was like this <laughs> back rationalized thing just to reduce the operating costs like per square foot or like per employee. And then it was like back rationalized uh-huh. as like a collaboration or like productivity hack. But then we just put on headphones. And then like, if you have to do deep work, like an engineer, like yourself, it's just like a freaking nightmare. And it's like, <laughs> check out this cool echoey brick building that we have in <clears throat> Jackson square or something. And it's just like <laughs> yeah. horrible. Um, and so like, I would really yeah. like to see something in between where it's like, bring back the half cubes or something that's like dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely think there's, um, you know, kind of cultural, uh, stagnation when it comes to tech in a lot of ways. Like I was hanging out with yeah. a friend of mine who works in like real estate finance, the, uh, a few months ago. And, you know, I was, it was during the week and he was like, he was picking up the phone and just like calling his coworkers. Like Mm -hmm. that was like the primary motion of like interacting. And it was like, wow, like, why don't we do that? (laughs) Like, it seems very efficient. Mm -hmm. Like he's literally like, just like getting on the phone and like doing a, you know, mid-year review with someone. And Mm -hmm. like, that was it versus, you know, in, in, in tech, it's like, you know, schedule a zoom meeting. That's probably an hour long. And you know, there's just like all this, uh, I don't know, ceremony involved, whereas they were just, you know, calling people up and not scheduling meetings, which is an interesting approach. But yeah, I definitely want to see, I would love to see more experimentation and, um, and new, new ideas in terms of, uh, how we work together in this world. (laughs) I think there's going to be like a pretty wide, you know, if we do that, Monte Carlo simulation of like, where are the productivity is going to end? It's going to be a big spread because one, I think something tech actually does really poorly is like 
we train employees, particularly on the sales side, non-technical side, like less than maybe like any other role. It's like unbelievable. Like, you know, I wasn't a consultant. I don't think, you know, you weren't either. But like, if you talk to people that go to Bain or McKinsey, the amount of training they get um, for a job that they're only going to stay in for two years is like unbelievable. Um, <laughs> when I pivoted into management, like, I think there was some like nominal course they put me in like six or nine months later. Um, but they were just like, oh, you're a top individual contributor. Like, good luck. Here you go. You figure it out. So I think yeah. um, that kind of like blase attitude has been present with go to like when your management structure is just like prowling the aisles, <laughs> you, you have to be like a little more intentional when it goes remote. And I think a lot of companies have really fallen short of that because they already don't have a culture of great enablement and training to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being in person, I think for people early in their career, learning mm -hmm. a new skill uh, kind of has a built in, you know, training plan, which is just go sit with someone. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah, in the remote world, you have to figure out more formal ways to do that. Okay. So maybe just kind of uh, zooming out as we approach the close here, um, are there any like technologies, like companies or spaces that you're like, particularly interested in right now? It could be ed tech or uh, otherwise. Yeah, I mean, um, not. I wouldn't say there's, uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot of hype around AI and companies in that space right now. Um, I've heard about this, I haven't, yeah. I have, not, I have not caught the AI bug. I'm a little bit AI skeptical, you might say. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think... I think there's there's a lot of things that that could happen in in the ed tech space around that that I think could be interesting. Um, obviously, ChatGPT has had like a huge effect on students and how, and how they do or don't do uh, work. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how uh, it ends up enabling kind of teachers and kind of the other side of the coin. Um, you know, I think there's two worlds. There's one world where we try and like you know, put it back in Pandora's box and like lock up AI and like re restrict access to it in, in the educational space. Um, but there's another world where I think it's a tool that everyone can use and kind of we think of new ways of uh, doing homework or lessons or um, tutoring or things like that that could be really interesting. But yeah, it seems like it's very early days and from an engineering perspective, I'm AI skeptical mainly because uh, it hallucinates a lot. It's just right. like you give it one input, you get either the world's greatest output or complete trash. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not deterministic what you're going to get. You don't know <laughs> until you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very difficult to, to engineer systems around that. Um, so I think there's this whole problem of, you know, figuring out what, how does that, how do you utilize that in a, in a product, you know, the lazy way is you just make a chatbot, um, mm -hmm. but chat interfaces are not for everyone. Um, totally. So, like, how do you how how does it actually get into a product in a way that's feels intelligent, feels like um, you're not, you know, you're you're doing something that you couldn't do before? Um, I think that's the the main challenge that there's no clear answer to uh, right now. Yeah, I think um, I think the success rate for for putting it back in Pandora's box for any given general purpose technology has been um, approximately zero. So I don't know if that's going to work for education. But the thing I'm, I'm pretty excited about in education is you've probably heard these studies where when people have like individual or shared tutors, uh, like a like a really classical 
kind of like Aristotelian or yeah. uh, like classical education of a, of a tutor motion instead of one to many. It's like a two or three sigma difference in terms of educational outcomes. And yeah. the thing that is pretty exciting, you know, hallucinations about, you know, history lessons aside, um, <laughs> that seems like it potentially could induce like a huge amount of leverage for people that do want to learn more or, you know, really embrace that like educational journey. So, um, yeah, yeah hopefully, hopefully they don't quash it, um, in the ed space and, and pretend like, you know, rattling off five paragraph essays is, is the way to go still, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So, um, cool. So maybe we finish with a, a couple questions, um, at the end here, but you know, before I do that, um, is there anything in particular, maybe you want to share with the audience, um, or, you know, talk about, um, before we pivot? Um, that's a good question. Uh, no, I don't think, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I think we've covered a lot that, uh, hopefully is interesting, but, um, yeah, it's hard to, uh, you know, I'm not a go to market professional, so I don't have, uh, great insights into what they want to hear. No problem. No problem. So, um, okay. Uh, closing question. Number one, what do you think has had a bigger, uh, or an outsized impact on your life, bigger impact on your life? Um, having a multi hundred million dollar, uh, exit or winning the state championship, uh, as a road bike racer uh, for Ohio. Oh man, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, I mean, cycling has been such a core, like part of my identity for such a long time that, uh, it has definitely, uh, had an impact on me. So, um, whereas the, the exit is just, you know, numbers in a, in a spreadsheet at the end of the day. Um, money, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, cycling is, has been probably the bigger, bigger thing in my life. Um, just like learning how to, learning how to suffer and enjoy it <laughs> translates into a lot of different areas. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I, I think I personally do like my best thinking on the bike. Um, yeah. particularly when you've got some like, really hard choice about personnel or just like a really hard trade off at work. It's just like going out there and like thinking about it for like an hour or two is pretty powerful for me. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's meditation in a lot of ways. Go, go out and be alone with your thoughts for hours. <laughs> Some would say that's uh, their worst nightmare, but yeah. <laughs> meditation that can sometimes be interrupted by uh, impacts on pavement. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, um, you know, I know you mentioned at the beginning of the call, um, you're trying to, you've stepped back a little bit from a full-time role at Clever. Um, do you have any idea of what you might want to do next or kind of like a general sketch? Yeah. I mean, I think the general sketch, at least on the professional side is, you know, um, <clears throat> find something that, uh, is, you know, worth, uh, dropping everything and, 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 uh, going back to startup mode, um, mm -hmm. again, which is a pretty high bar. Um, I think especially, you know, given my bias towards doing things in person and probably means, uh, traveling to SF a lot or some, some area that's not Cincinnati. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of the, the professional next step, but really it's been awesome to kind of step back, have a little bit of a, sabbatical uh, in, in some ways and just be 
kind of more present with my kids, more less stressed around family, um, kind of really strip away everything and see really what interests me and, and what I want to spend time on. And, um, you know, that's been a lot of riding my bike, a lot of like reading and, uh, Mm -hmm. just like following my technical interests, regardless of whether they're relevant to the company and what we're working on. Um, that's all been really, really enjoyable. Um, and then just like being the on-call parent, uh, has, Mm -hmm. has, has taken a lot of, uh, time, but has been enjoyable. So, um, yeah, I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so there's this brief period of time where they enjoy hanging out with you and just making the most of that, um, before they become angsty teenagers (laughs) uh, has been nice. Yeah. I I empathize. I have a three-year-old and one-year-old, so, uh, we also are in it right now. So, okay, great. Well, um, final closing question, which I stole from Brian Chow from the, uh, from the new world podcast, which is, uh, one of my absolute favorites. What would you say, uh, is something that has too much order and needs more disorder? And what is something that has, um, too much disorder and needs more order? It's deep. Um, I think I, I can think of one thing very clearly on the what has too much order front. Um, I've been reading, I'm kind of an urbanist uh, uh, on the side, attend some city council meetings here in Cincinnati, trying to teach them the the mistakes that San Francisco has made that I hope we don't repeat here in Cincinnati. And um, I would say kind of in general, our built environment is like, mm-hmm too stagnant like we have Mm -hmm. a lot of kind of status quo bias when it comes to what our neighborhoods look like what our cities look like um and this kind of resistance to change is 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 kind of like embedded in our in our psyche in a lot of ways um so yeah i would i would love to see more entropy and like uh the physical world what we're what we're doing with uh buildings and infrastructure um on the like, what has more, too much entropy and uh, not enough order? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you know, following a lot of my technical interests uh, just freely has uh, kind of re or like underlined the fact that you know, when it comes to just simply like building a website, there is way too many options out there. <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, there's just like, if you talk to any engineer, they'll talk about mm-hmm. like the front end JavaScript ecosystem. Every year there's a new framework that is the hottest thing, you know, whether it's React or Next.js or uh, Remix or like, there's like an endless array of these tools that you can use to, ten to more, build stuff. 10 times more dev tools to build it with. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so it's uh um it's kinda like that XKCD comic where it's like, Oh, like this the standard doesn't solve my problem, so I need to create a new standard. Um, you know, like there's this infinite loop of just reinventing stuff and obviously it leads to a lot of innovation and, and, and kind of raising the, the bar for what these tools can do, but it does get exhausting at some point. <laughs> um and mm-hmm. uh yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but less less swinging back and forth between, you know, 
different things that engineers are excited about. Great answer. All right. Well, with that, Raf, I think we'll bring it to a close. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Cool. Thanks, Stuart. It's been fun.